This is the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. One of the best ways to learn is by reflecting on the mistakes and successes of others. Each episode within this series will showcase one of the many case histories developed by GBA and its member firms. They're a collection of stories that cover many different disciplines within the geo professions, each with a unique message and lesson learned. We hope you enjoy this podcast and encourage you to share the lessons learned with others at your organization. Welcome to the GBA Case Histories series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. My name is Tiffany Voorhees. I'm a vice president at SME and group leader of the Steel, Coatings, and Non-Destructive Testing Group. I am recording this podcast as part of my involvement in GBA's Emerging Leaders class and the Business Practices Committee. Before I get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode is based on a recent and sensitive case, so my interviewee has asked that his voice be altered. If you think he sounds a little odd, that is why. He has graciously shared this story so other member firms can learn and make our community stronger. In today's episode, we are digging into Case History 108. I have with me Joe Geo from the GBA member firm that was involved in the case. Welcome, Joe. Hello. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. This is a long case that stretched more than a decade from the start of the project to the conclusion of the $23 million lawsuit. But I'm going to attempt to lay out the timeline from an outsider's perspective. Then you can clarify anything before we jump into the questions and assess the lessons learned. Sound good? Yes. All right. The quick numbers. This was a $23 million lawsuit. The legal battle lasted approximately seven years. In the end, the GBA member firm paid out less than $1 million, which might seem like a win. But as you'll see, the headaches and impacts of cases like this mean that nobody wins in the end. A little bit about the project. This project involved new construction of an assisted living facility in Colorado. The GBA member firm had worked with the client before and done over 100 assisted living facilities for the same company. It was a five-story wood structure originally designed with an underground parking garage. The GBA member firm's initial proposal was to perform a geotechnical study. The client's representative accepted this proposal and the included limitation of liability, which was $50,000 or the fee, whichever was higher. The GBA member firm performed their assessment and provided recommendations. This specific region of Colorado was known to have extremely expansive clays, which is not normally a problem as the member firm was well experienced and knowledgeable in the specific region. Here I wanna break away for a second and just talk about expansive clays for anyone like me who didn't fully understand how much these could impact the project. My basic understanding is the goal is to remove them or keep them dry. Assuming the clays are staying, you typically account for some moisture exposure from natural elements during construction, plus you account for things like irrigation systems after construction. It's common to get six to nine inches of heave over decades, but can be 12 to 24 in more extreme cases. Because of this, you commonly design for some uplift in the structure. So back to this specific project. In this region, buildings are typically designed to have a void space under the slab because of these heaving clays. The GBA member firm performed the initial testing and foresaw an estimated nine inches of heave, 
Therefore, they recommended a minimum of 12-inch void space to accommodate the movement. This was not an issue since the plan as they knew it was for a parking garage under the slab, which meant the mechanical and plumbing components would be suspended and have a lot of room for movement and access if they needed to do repairs. So let's fast forward a little bit. Prior to the start of construction, the GBA member firm was asked to add additional services. These included construction materials engineering and testing, which we commonly refer to as COMET services. The scope of these COMET services was limited to earthwork observation and testing, foundation construction observation, and concrete sampling and testing. For these services, instead of making a change to increase the initial contract, the owner's rep sent their own contract terms. The GBA member firm signed them, which meant that the project now had two very different contracts. Late in design, the owner's representative for construction decided to eliminate the underground parking garage to save on costs. The design team was led by an architectural firm who noted that the GBA member firm had identified expansive clays and therefore the design team went with a structurally suspended slab over a crawl space and used the 12 inch minimum recommendation as the size for the crawl space. To create the void space, the structural engineer recommended cardboard forms that would support the slab during placement. These types of forms later collapse once they're exposed to moisture. The structural engineer also used the 12-inch minimum recommendation for their design. Once the GBA member firm learned that the design had changed, their project manager issued a report modification to address void form selection. Specifically, they recommended that a certain type of form not be used. After construction had started, the mechanical contractor sent an RFI to the whole design team saying that the sanitary sewer had to be modified because it didn't incorporate local practices for protection from swelling clays. The mechanical engineering firm that had designed the system was located in a different state and not familiar with local practices. This mechanical design team should be the one to respond. However, after a month, they had not commented on the RFI. At this point, the mechanical contractor sent another email that they would need to stop construction until they had a revised design in hand. At this point, the GBA member firm's project manager got involved to try and help by responding and making some suggestions. He didn't intend for those to be an official RFI response, rather some things they could consider. However, the contractor proceeded with installation after receiving this response. Note, the contractor did not follow the suggestions, but the member firm's project manager did respond and comment on piping, which will become relevant later. As construction progressed, the member firm had a field representative on site. They were not responsible for observation of the sewer construction, but were contracted to observe concrete placement, which meant they saw the void forms during placement of the concrete. On two occasions, this field rep noted that void forms had collapsed during the placement. The construction superintendent reportedly indicated that they would demolish those areas that had been collapsed and redo them. The member firm did not specifically follow up on this since the field review of the void and forms was the responsibility of the structural firm. That summarizes the basic background of the associated construction events. So let's move forward to the issues. 
Approximately four years after construction was complete, sanitary sewer lines began backing up. Then lower level walls and the floor began heaving. It got bad enough that nursing home residents had to be moved to temporary housing. The owner then hired a forensic geotechnical firm to assess what was happening. The forensic consultant's opinion pointed to a few different contributing factors. These generally included poorly designed sanitary sewer piping, inadequate inspection of the void forms during construction, and insufficient void space. He concluded that these contributors led to sewer line breakage, which allowed water into the subgrade and led to excessive swelling of the expansive clays. His recommended course of action was for the owner to excavate a deep crawl space under the building, essentially turning the void space into a basement, which would allow contractors to gain access to the sewer lines for repair. This endeavor cost over $8 million. This is where the claim story starts. The client filed a claim seeking $23 million and named all the involved design firms. This included the geotechnical engineer, structural, civil, mechanical, the architect, mechanical contractor, and the general contractor. The dollar value came from the sewer line repairs, floor slab repairs, building interior repairs, lost revenue from resident, relocation of residents, attorney's fees, expert fees, and court costs. The basis of the claim against our member firm was this. The owner's legal team claimed that the firm was principally responsible for these issues because of the following. And note, these are paraphrased in my words. First, it was a soils issue. Also, the project manager had suggested changes to the sewer design and therefore took responsibility for it. The recommended 12-inch void space should have been at least 24, in their opinion. The addendum the member firm issued regarding specific void forms, in their opinion, meant that the firm agreed with the change and the new design. The firm should have warned that the space wasn't large enough for repair of damaged sewer lines if needed. The field rep didn't do enough regarding the collapsed void forms during concrete placement. And the firm's paperwork was incomplete because information was missing regarding some engineering decisions. That's a whole lot of claims. We'll come back to those in a second, but first let's go back to the original limitation of liability. Early on, the member firm's attorneys filed a motion for partial summary judgment based on the initial contract that had limited the liability to $50,000 or the fee, whichever was greater. The client's attorney argued that the limitation could not be enforced since this was a residential facility and the state of Colorado does not allow limitations of liability on residential projects. The court disagreed and stated that the $50,000 limit did apply. However, the other team appealed the decision and all the way to Colorado Supreme Court who ultimately decided with them. This meant the firm was not limited in liability, even though the owner had agreed to it. Now back to those claims. While this was all ongoing, the member firm's legal team was assessing the claims submitted to the court. Their expert reviewed the information, visited the site, and discussed the project with the project manager and associated staff. His opinion, and again I'm paraphrasing, but it generally indicated... The geotech was not a mechanical engineer on the project, and the issue was sewer-related, not soils. 
the member firm had warned the design team about local soil conditions and failed, they, the design team, failed to fully factor the warnings and recommendations into their design. A 12-inch void space was common and consistently used in the region without issue. The lab tests were consistent with local common practice and met the standard of care. It did not matter that the project manager had made perceived recommendations on the piping design because the contractor didn't follow the recommendations and did their own design. The field representative wasn't responsible for void form observations and reporting. That was the responsibility of the structural engineer. And lastly, email exchanges between the client reps and the member firm indicated that the owner's team understood the risks posed by the expansive clay soils. So this is where the back and forth began. The member firm's team tried working with their team to settle, at one point even offering $3 million to avoid it, having it drag on for years. This was not accepted, mediation didn't work, and after seven years of trying to reach an agreement and preparing for an upcoming trial that was two weeks away, the professional liability insurance company finally reached an agreement for less than $1 million. So Joe, that was a lot of information to boil down in a few minutes, but would you say I generally recapped it correctly? And if not, please correct anything. Yeah, yeah, it was a good summary. Let me add a few uh, other bits of information. Uh, one, the, the building is, although the void space was there under the floor slab, the building frame is supported by drilled shaft foundations that go deep into the bedrock. So those won't be impacted by the expansive clay. Uh, the void space should keep them isolated from the clay. The second thing is it can be a difficulty with terminology, void space, crawl space, basement. And in this instance, it's a void space. A crawl space indicates that something that a person can get inside of, you know, three, four feet deep. In this case, since it was only 12 inches deep and full of these cardboard boxes, it wasn't really accessible to a person. So we typically would call it a void space. Another point is people may think, well, why did they have to dig a basement under the building to fix the plumbing? Couldn't they just cut through the floor and come in from above? Here in my house, if I have to fix a pipe, I cut a hole in the, uh, in the floor slab and fix it. I couldn't do that on this project because that's a structural floor with a lot of reinforcing. If you cut a hole through it big enough to get a person down in there to fix the plumbing, you've compromised the structural integrity of that floor. So that wasn't an option. And then one last point of explanation is expansive clay soils are handled in different ways in different parts of the country. In Colorado, as you said, the soils tend to be dry. It's an arid climate. So everything is done to try to keep the soils dry so they don't swell. You can't always do that because of irrigation and natural moisture changes after construction. Other parts of the country take a different approach. In the Midwest, expansive clays tend to be moist to start with, so measures are taken to keep them moist and prevent them from drying out. I think that's an interesting variation in our in our industry from place to place. It's a great example of how the standard of care varies locally. In Colorado, they try to keep expansive clays dry. In Kansas, they try to keep them moist. And, and then one last point, you mentioned seven years of litigation. We tried mediation three times. 
all of us try to settle litigation through mediation or alternative measures. We don't want it going to a jury trial. We tried three times to mediate this, uh, this litigation, and each time the mediation failed. Great points. And I loved your points about different regions of the country and even how they might have similar types of issues. It's addressed differently in different areas. So that really ties into why it was so important for a mechanical contractor to understand that area, right? Yeah, that, that's right. We tend to think uh, we geotechnical engineers, civil engineers tend to think other branches of engineering don't have as much geographic variation. Structural engineer has steel and concrete everywhere, but there is geographic variation in other practices of engineering as well. You talked about that void space versus crawl space, but one thing as I was researching this case that kept coming to mind, when you guys design and say it needs to be a 12-inch void space, in my mind, that would be 12 inches with nothing because you're allowing for soils to move in that 12 inches. But it sounds here like they put the piping within that 12-inch space. Is that correct? And if so, was that your intent? Well, there's all sorts of options there. It's best in that situation if the piping is entirely in the air, in that void space. And also, it's best if there's 12 inches of void under the bottom of the pipe. But that forces the void space to be even deeper then. Say that's a four inch diameter pipe and it's hanging two inches below the floor. Well, then you just deepen the whole thing six inches to make room for that pipe. That's a best situation. If that's not doable for various reasons or even based on economic decisions, you can have the pipes sitting on the subgrade or even buried in the soil as long as the structural and mechanical engineers realize those pipes are going to be heaving upward with the ground and the design details, the structural details, mechanical details, allow the pipes to move without being damaged. So there's all sorts of options. It requires expertise from the engineers involved to accommodate the options that are the, um, the lesser preferred options. If you're burying the sewer pipe in the soil, you have to have a connection to the building that lets that pipe move 12 inches without damaging the pipe. That was very helpful. Thank you. One of the first things I'd like to talk about is the impacts to the firm, your firm specifically. When something like this happens, can you touch on the impacts to the team? Because I have to imagine it's really stressful for the staff who were involved. They've got to lose focus on their current projects. I mean, they find out about this years later, right? They have to backtrack and they're trying to work on new stuff, but they have to go and dig into this old stuff. So you have opportunity costs that are lost there, actual costs, lawyers. So what are the impacts that you've learned to really get into people's heads to try to avoid these things? Yeah, I like your use of the word, uh, the phrase opportunity cost, because so much of the cost here is not a bill you're paying. It's not your lawyer's bill. It's not the check you're writing to the uh, litigant. It's the fact that some of your best people won't be billable won't be marketing, won't be doing business development because they're busy fending off this litigation. So that's the thing that can be hidden in all this is you're going to put some of your best people uh, to fight this $23 million claim. And now those people can't do other things to help your firm grow and help your firm be profitable. So that opportunity cost is, is there. Uh, secondly, the morale. It's no fun 
you may look at it as a challenge. I'm up to the challenge. You're telling me I did this wrong. Let me, I'm an engineer. Let me prove you, prove to you that I did it right. But for years, you're going to have people on the other side of the table saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're incompetent. You didn't do this right. Look at these mistakes you made. And it can really be a hammer on your morale when the other side, right or wrong, fair or not fair, is telling you you're incompetent and you have to deal with that. Uh, then there's the direct cost, hiring an attorney, hiring experts, and then eventually your insurance company writing a check to, to cover it. We talked about the emotional impacts of your staff. That's obviously detrimental. But hearing in the end that you paid less than a million dollars, those attorney costs and expert witnesses that you mentioned, that has to have exceeded that. Yeah, and it gets complicated because that all figures into your insurance. It, it depends on how your insurance policy is written, but typically expert costs, lawyer costs, and even your own internal labor costs for people who are working on it are uh, part of your portion of the legal settlement. You essentially have a deductible, and it's not quite that simple in the world of professional liability, but our professional liability policies have a deductible. Your firm has to pay the first certain amount might be $50,000, might be a million dollars, depending on how big your firm is and how much risk they're willing to take. And those costs, those expert costs, legal fees, and your internal costs go towards that deductible. So you guys essentially, when something like this happens, you have to open up a project number and track everything, right? right? That's right. Speaking of money, why do you think they rejected your initial offer of $3 million? They were so certain that this was a geotechnical problem and that we had made mistakes. They convinced themselves that they had a very strong claim against us. And therefore, they settled early on. They settled their claims against the other engineering firms and the contractor, against the structural engineer, the mechanical engineer, architect, general contractor, mechanical contractor. They settled early on with all of them and focused on us because they were convinced this was a geotechnical problem. Wow. So they, and I'm trying to remember if it was laid out in the case or if you and I had just talked about it, but they got a few million from each of those other firms, right? It's all confidential. You never really quite know, but we can assume all the other firms, especially the contractors were in the millions of dollars in, in the settlement range. Yes. What is the story behind the void form design? You know, the case history states that your PM issued a notice not to use a specific type, which seems like a good catch, and they're trying to head off issues, but that may have actually been an issue later. So what's that story? Really, we should have just left that up to the structural engineer. We tell the structural engineer, you need to keep this floor 12 inches off the subgrade build it that way. And then, so you, you build your slab on these cardboard boxes, these void forms. The cardboard boxes are strong enough and moisture proof enough to hold up that wet concrete for a few weeks until it cures. And then you don't need those boxes anymore. So over time, they soak water up from the underlying soil that weakens them. And then if when that soil begins to heave, it's just like you stomping on a cardboard box. The box crushes. So rather than the upward movement of the soil being transferred through that cardboard box, instead the box just crushes. 
and then actually over time the cardboard decays if you went down there and looked decades later there'd just be some paper scraps cardboard scraps on the bottom of that floor so the, the question is why was uh, so our inspector our field technician uh, occasionally commented when the contractor had difficulties, when the contractor had a bad day and the void form collapsed under the weight of the wet concrete. That's a mess for a contractor. And in those instances where our technician observed it, the contractor came in, ripped out that uh, problematic area and rebuilt it. We discovered years later when the demolition work was going on, the repair work was going on, that there were many other areas where the void forms had collapsed during construction, but nobody had noticed it. They had filled the void with concrete and therefore there was no void space under portions of the building's floor. And the question is, how did that happen? How was it that some void forms collapsed and nobody noticed it. Nobody repaired it. Nobody did anything about it. Well, that's a that's a difficult question. That was an interesting distinguishing factor. We always try to lay out our scope as clearly as possible when we bid projects like this for Colmet services. So you guys, you're reviewing the soil and then the concrete, but not that space in between. How how did that come about that it wasn't in yours? It's just how the architect divided the scope of services for the special inspections. And perhaps it doesn't make sense to leave that up to the structural engineer to check. But it, it can be checked. You don't have to be there the moment the concrete's being poured to verify that the void forms worked. You could come by a week or two later and if they collapsed, you'll see they collapsed just by shining your flashlight under that slab that's under construction. And so the structural engineer is making occasional trips to the site during construction and it was just on his or her list of things to do is to check those void forms. You know, in, in reality, well, where we got in trouble is our official paperwork, our daily field reports, our, our monthly progress reports, mentioned those uh, void form collapse incidences that we observed. What we should have done, well, if you're at a site and you see a problem like that, hey, these void forms collapsed and it's not in your scope of work, you still should inform people that need to know just to help the project be a good project. But don't put it in your official paperwork. Instead, in, in this 2020 hindsight, we should have called the structural engineer, sent an email to the structural engineer, and said, hey, while we were on site today testing the concrete, measuring the slump, making cylinders for laboratory strength, testing the concrete, we happened to observe that the void forms collapsed in this area. Being as that's in your scope of services, we thought you should know so that you can take care of the remediation of that problem. That's what we should have done, is informed the structural engineer who was responsible for it that there had been a problem and let them do the official reporting. Well, that's a great point and lesson to share. I'm actually working with some other GBA members on a different podcast right now where we're trying to coach newer staff on liability, report writing, things like that. And that's one of the items we talked about is if you see things outside your scope, sometimes you are responsible for reporting. So talking to your team leader, your project manager, somebody sharing that information and getting guidance on the proper way to either report it or not report it in your report and then follow up with somebody else. That's that's a really great takeaway. Can you 
talk about that Colorado law regarding residential. My take from reading all this was that you guys didn't expect that to apply to this project. So what what was the backstory there? Most states, including Colorado, have laws on the books to protect homeowners. You and I, uh, when we, on the houses we own, there are laws to protect us from bad contractors, bad engineers, bad consultants. And because homeowners in the eyes of the courts tend to be naive, most homeowners aren't engineers, they don't understand foundation problems or structural problems, the courts give those homeowners extra protections. Most states, if you're a professional engineer providing services to a homeowner, you cannot limit your liability. You're open to full liability if something goes wrong because they don't want the homeowners to be taken care of. And that's, that's a good law because plenty of homeowners do get taken advantage of. But in Colorado, the law didn't say home. It didn't say primary residence. It didn't say owner-occupied residence. It just said residential property. So the law was unclear. And when laws are unclear, that's part of a court's job is to decide what does the law mean? And uh, the other side managed to convince the Supreme Court of Colorado that the law said residential structure. It did not limit it to houses or owner-occupied structures. It said residential. In a nursing home, assisted living place, people live there. They, they spend the night there. They spend years there. So the court decided this, it wasn't the intent of the law, but this is what the law said. It said residential structure, and this is a residential structure. You know, other states have... Uh, thrown structures such as college dormitories or even hotels into that category. You have to be careful in some states, if you're working on the engineering of a hotel, you might not be able to limit your liability because of that. Wow. So what has your firm done? Because you guys are in a lot more states than just Colorado. What do you guys do differently now in light of this case? We don't work on assisted living or nursing homes anymore. I know other firms that won't work on them if they're wood frame structures. You know, three-story wood frame structures tend to be move around a bit more, have more problems. Whereas a concrete frame structure, a steel frame structure is a stouter, better built. So some firms draw the line at wood frame structures. But you know, look at many GBA firms, or most GBA firms don't do residential projects anymore, houses. Uh, some do. But you need to look at, in the state where you're working, what does residential mean? And do you need to draw that line of what you will do and won't do somewhere else based on the interpretation of residential in your state? That's very interesting because I know we typically avoid residential. I'm a department manager and I typically tell our staff, you know, avoid residential. There are only specific cases where we can get involved and I need to know about it and have input. But you wouldn't think of college dorms, hotels, any of those typically as falling into that category. So that's some great advice. Yeah, there. you know, you could even be in more trouble because sometimes your professional liability policies are written to exclude residential work. Your insurance carrier doesn't want to be paying for that liability, so they don't allow you to do residential work. And so if you have a policy that doesn't cover liability on residential projects, what does the word residential mean? Speaking of insurance company, what happens when they get involved? Like, what what is that like, you know, when they hear that you've got a claim? What are those steps and, and what, what do you go through there? One thing I like to explain to people is you lose control. 
when it's a $100,000 claim, it's, it's your money. It's not the insurance company's money. When it's a million-dollar claim, it's kind of part your money, part the insurance company's money. But when it's $20 million, more than $20 million, that's the insurance company's money. You're going to pay your deductible, your upfront costs, but 90% of the money going out is coming from the insurance company, not from your firm. So they take control. They're going to do what they need to do to protect themselves. That means they may wreck a client relationship that you hope survives the litigation because they don't care about your client relationship. They're just trying to protect uh, their payout. They will determine what experts are going to be hired because, again, it's their money they're trying to protect. And they can be uh, tougher to deal with. You know, we all see television commercials for State Farm or Geico and how fun they are and nice they are, you know, good people to buy insurance from. But when there's $20 million on the line, insurance companies will be tough. And uh, that can be shocking in litigation to see just how tough-minded your insurance company can be. But think, uh, do you, would you want to be the one writing a $20 million check? Nope. So you're going to do everything you can to stop that. As our members know, they can get a copy of this case history for free through the GBA site. And again, that's case number 108. If you're not a member firm, you can purchase that through the site. And we'll have links in the show notes. At the end of this case history, Joe, you have eight really good lessons learned. And there were four of those thought we should dig into a little deeper on here. That first one, you titled it, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. Can you elaborate on that? Because it sounds like your project manager was trying to help keep the project on track when he responded to that RFI about the plumbing. And I can see this happening at most of our firms. We always want to help. So what would you recommend as a better course of action to help? Yeah, to me, that's the most interesting part of this whole case history is the fact that we were just trying to help. We were trying to keep a construction project uh, from grinding to a halt because an RFI hadn't been answered a month later. So our person, our engineer, steps up and says, this is how I see sewers being built on other projects. And he emails a detail saying, look, here's what I've seen done on other projects. He shouldn't have because we're not mechanical engineers. That's not our scope of work. You know, don't be Wonder Woman, Superman. Don't try to solve every problem yourself. But we do want to help our clients, and we do want the projects to be successful. So what could we have done that would have perhaps solved the problem without exposing us to the liability of giving an opinion on sewer design? In hindsight, it would have been better if we'd done one of two things. One, we could have called the mechanical engineer and say, hey, buddy, answer the RFI. It's been sitting there for a month do your job and respond to that contractor. Tell them what needs to be done. But if the mechanical engineer is ignoring the contractor, they're probably going to ignore us too. So that would then trigger what we wish we had done part two. And that would have been to recommend to the owner, to the client, another mechanical engineer, somebody local who understood local practice. Call the owner and say, this RFI has been sitting out there for a month with no response. I don't think your mechanical engineer is going to solve this problem because I don't think they know how to do it. They're, they're not from around here. They don't know how to design a sewer that's going to be torn apart by expensive clay soils. Therefore, I recommend you hire this other firm local that does this all the time and they can take 
care of this. Now, you as an owner, you're not going to like that because that means you've got to pay a second time for something that's already uh, been completed, and it may slow down the project because the new mechanical engineer is going to need a few weeks to catch up. But in my opinion, that's what we should have done. We should have recommended a different local mechanical engineer who knew what they were doing. Great advice there. All right. Your next lesson learned was titled, It Pays to Be Your Brother's Keeper. This comment was related to the field reviews. My understanding was that your firm had the field reps doing those COMET services. We briefly talked about how the structural engineer had reps for other parts. And I was just wondering, can you elaborate on this a little bit more and maybe tell the backstory of what happened when your rep noticed some things were off that were really the responsibility of the structure? Yeah, and that's coming back to the issue of if you're on a site and you see there's a problem, you've got some obligation to do what you can to make sure that problem is fixed, but not outside of your scope of work or your responsibility. So... What we should have done when we observed that the void forms had collapsed sometimes under the weight of the wet concrete for that lower level floor is instead of putting it in our reports and our notes that this void form collapsed, which then made it look like we were responsible for all the void forms, performance of all the void forms when we weren't. We should have, as the lesson learned, said, been our brother's keeper and called the structural engineer, emailed the structural engineer and said, hey, when our technician was on site yesterday, he noticed that, you know, from row A to G, from row six to nine, the void forms collapsed into that floor slab. Did your structural engineer who was at the site notice that? Are you going to tell the contractor what needs to be done to fix that? ask a question that then allows the structural engineer to say, well, yes, we did notice that. We will take care of it. Or thanks for telling us, we'll go take a look at it. So we should have given the structural engineer the nudge to fix that problem themselves rather than us trying to address it. And really, you could say, well, I'm not responsible for the structural engineer to do his job. But if everybody does their job, everything goes more smoothly and there isn't legal trouble like this. A little bit of effort keeping an eye on and assisting the other people on the project team will make everything more smoothly and keep us all out of trouble. That's one of the most common coaching things I feel that I have to do with newer staff is just help them understand that there are ways to help without getting us in trouble. Making a phone call saying, hey, we think you should look at this a little closer. All right. Your next uh, lesson learned that I really liked was documentation can be your best defense. During the court proceedings, there was an issue with some of the hand calculations that they had found during discovery. And if I understand it correctly, someone did hand calcs that weren't completely thorough, but the checks and balances within your firm worked perfectly and the official calculations were complete and good, right? That should mean no issues. But the original calcs apparently cast some doubt on your accuracy in the eyes of the court. Is this a fair representation? And can you share a little more backstory so our members know what to look for and what they should do when they discover any internal inconsistencies? Sure, sure. So the point was, we had a set of calculations, the calculations that were done to determine how deep did the drilled pier foundations need to go into the rock to hold up this building. That was the point of the calculations. How deep does the foundation need to go? 
handwritten calculation, which is fine. It's a simple calculation. It does not need to be computerized, but it was sloppily done. It didn't look like it was checked. There were some mathematical errors in it. There were some uh, bad parameters used in it and they come up came up with an answer of i believe 20 feet the handwritten calculation said these drilled piers need to be 20 feet deep but our final recommendations our geotechnical report said the drilled piers needed to be 38 feet deep and fortunately 38 feet deep is what was built and that is what was needed so why did we have a calculation in our file that was so different that said 20 feet deep well, it was a first calculation that was rejected by our senior reviewer. Our senior reviewer looked at it and said, this doesn't sound right. That's not deep enough. Redo it. But the original calcs were left in the file. So litigation starts. And in the American justice system, we have to hand over all of our files. You're not allowed to hide anything. There's no surprises. So the other side's looking through our files and they find these initial calculations, which are very poorly done and have all sorts of mistakes. And even though that wasn't our final calc, it wasn't what the basis of our final recommendation, it's there and it made us look bad. They were able to take that calculation and say, look at all these mistakes your engineer was making. This is an indication that you are incompetent. You really don't know what you're doing. And that's what they're trying to convince the, the mediator, the arbitrator, the jury. They're trying to convince them that, look, this firm is incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. Look, here's an example of a calculation they did that was just full of mistakes. And that wouldn't be a fair attack on us because we fixed it, we corrected it. But just the fact that it was still there in, their, in our file, they took it and tried to use it to persuade mediators that, look, these people don't know what they're doing. So the point is, appearances can be everything in litigation. It's not, sometimes it's not a matter of the truth, it's a matter of appearances. So the other side will try to make you look bad by digging through your file and seeing what bad pieces of paper you still have buried in that file. So lessons learned is keep your files clean. If you replace the calculation, get rid of that old calculation and just make sure your paper trail is, is appropriate, is cleaned up, is, is checked, is organized. So people can't go digging through piles and piles of paper just looking for something to make you look bad. Yeah, that's a really interesting takeaway because, you know, as new staff are learning, they're going to make mistakes. And sounds like you guys had the perfect process in place to catch those things and make sure that didn't happen. So things worked exactly the way they should, but by keeping those old calculations, you end up looking bad. So I think that's a great takeaway. So your advice is just when you replace something with a newer version. So this is not like, you know, you've got V2 of a report that you actually sent to the client, but this is just something internal draft, essentially. Get rid of that, yes. right? All right. Your last one that I wanted to touch on was email is an appropriate means of communicating professional judgment. You had some good advice here on treating emails just like reports and having a reviewer. And this is a practice that I use in our department when somebody is maybe uncomfortable with exactly how to word things. But it sounds like you suggest taking this further and actually having a reviewer as though some of these are reports. So how far do you suggest going? Like if you're coordinating simple site visits or project deliverable dates, obviously you don't need that. But where would you draw the line? As soon as there's any judgment or interpretation or clarification in the text of the email, then it is an engineering um, deliverable. 
no different than if you had written it in a letter or report. So as soon as there's judgment, interpretation, clarification in that email, it needs to be reviewed and you need documentation of that review. And it can be simple. A good way to do it is just an internal email exchange where, say, Jane writes an email saying, dear client, I got your question earlier today at the job site visit. You were asking if the on-site soil is suitable for use as structural fill below the floor slab. Now that I've been back to the office, I've looked things over and no, it is not. You know, based on this information, the on-site soil cannot be used within two feet of the floor slab. Something like that. You know, client asks you a question at a job site. You don't know the answer. You go back to the office and you send them an email. Well, that email has a judgment. No, the on-site soil is not suitable for uses filled below the floor slab. So what Jane should do then is before she sends that email to the owner, send it to your in-house senior reviewer, your QA reviewer, your ITR, whatever you want to call him or her. Send it to your senior reviewer and say, hey, I'm going to send this to the client. Here's the situation. Please review this email. And then the reviewer, the the ITR, whatever you want to call them, uh, treats it as if it's a letter. Just because it's an email doesn't mean it gets uh, a simpler, quicker process. It still gets reviewed. If the senior reviewer wants to make edits, we show those um, through track changes or whatever you want to do. Send it back to Jane, then Jane can revise her email and send it on. Now you've got a paper trail showing that Jane was not out there acting on her own. Her engineering opinion was reviewed, the reviewer responded, and, and you've got a, a, a written trail of that process to protect you. Great advice. Well, that was my last main question that I had for you. Is there anything else that you can share with our listeners as far as, you know, just maybe one big takeaway? Because I know you've had to deal with a few legal cases, but this was obviously a really big one that, you know, greatly impacted your firm. So any other lessons learned or takeaways? No, I think the, the main point is, as we discussed, when you are trying to solve your clients' problems, their needs, keep the financial and liability exposure of your firm in mind. We do want to help our clients, but we must protect our firms. How you respond to them, how you assist them can have a significant impact on the financial performance of your firm and the liability you're exposed to. And although we'd love to be able to solve all of our clients' problems for free, we can't always do that. And you just got to keep that in mind, whether you're at a project site or in the office, if a client has a problem, assist them with it, but don't forget to think about how it's going to impact the financial and liability performance of your firm. I really appreciate you taking the time to share this story and your lessons learned with our member firms so that they can get something from your experience and hopefully not to have to deal with a similar situation. So again, I appreciate it. And for our listeners, just a reminder that you can get all of these case histories on the GBA website. There are hundreds of them and we'll have more podcasts coming soon with further dive into several of those cases. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the GBA Case History Series. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the GBA podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing.